0: Well, welcome everyone. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I do have the privilege of giving us God's word this morning. Uh, just to recap, if you remember, we entered into a new sermon series called "The Shared Life," and this is all about relationships. Um, and so, last week, what we said was this: is that uh, whether you uh, have been believing in Jesus for the last 80 years of your life, or if you don't believe in Him at all, uh, you can actually benefit greatly from this sermon series. And the reason why is because 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 we believe here at New Life Fellowship that we believe that whether or not you believe in Jesus, whether you you believe he's God or Lord or Savior, any of those things, uh, if, if you begin applying his wisdom... If you begin applying his words to your life, you will actually experience life and light in any part of your your life that you begin applying these relationships to. And so last week, we started talking about relationships. And so if you begin applying some of the words of Jesus to your relational life, you're going to see life and light shine through it. And so our hope really through this sermon series is that you see the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is through the wisdom that he shares with us in Scripture. And so last week, just to recap, we said this, we said that one of the most valuable things on planet earth, one of the most valuable things that will actually make us really happy and joyful, and scripture tells us this, is actually the shared life, is actually our relationships. These things are going to bring us the most joy, not finding the perfect hobby, uh, not finding the perfect career or house or car, but it's actually the relationships in our lives. And thus, because they are valuable, they are going to cost us a lot of things. Just like a diamond is valuable and it will cost us a lot of money, relationships are valuable and they will cost us. They will constrain our lives. They will cause us to give resources, time, and energy to pour into these different relationships. And we said this, right? Because it's valuable, because it's costly, we also believe that you need resources to love, to share this life with other people. And we said this, we believe that Christianity, out of all the worldviews of the world, out of all the religions, even atheism, out of all those different worldviews, views we believe that christianity can offer the greatest resources for us to be loving people and this is why christians should technically speaking if we use the love of christ properly we should be the most loving people on planet earth in other words as christians we have to get this right we cannot get this wrong because this is what our religion is all about it's all about god coming to us saving us redeeming us not just to go to heaven but to be in a relationship with him And so he's given us love. He's given us all these things. And therefore, we said that the number one transformation, the number one transformation is not uh, simply getting over your sins, not simply getting over addiction or some of the struggles that you might have, but rather the number one transformation you are going to see in your life, if you take the words of Christ seriously, and if you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, is your relationships. You're going to see life and light in all of your relationships. And so let's take this thought now one step further for this week, okay? If, if relationships are the thing that are going to transform, here's what James is going to say now in the book of James. This is the brother of Jesus, okay? Here's what James is going to say. He's going to say this now. If relationships are the thing that's going to transform, here's what needs to happen first. Your words, Your words are going to change. In fact, look at what he says. This is not our passage for today, but right before our passage in chapter one, we're going to study chapter three, but in chapter one, verse 26, look at what James says. He says, if anyone, if anyone thinks he is religious, in other words, if you think you're a Christian, if you think you follow Jesus, if you think you love Jesus, okay, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, he says this, this person's religion is worthless if you are not able to control your tongue, if you're not able to speak words of life, he says your religion is worthless. Your Christianity is worthless. You actually don't probably know the gospel, in other words. And so we have to take these words seriously, and what what I'm hoping to do today is to really help us with that, to give us the tools and the resources to begin speaking life everywhere that we go, because we know this, that the tongue is incredibly powerful. So with that said, turn with me to James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12. If at this time, if you're able, would you rise as we read God's word together? James chapter 3, 1 to 12 Uh, I'll read this for us. If you could respond after the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you could respond with thanks be to God, Uh, I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after the prayer. This is the reading of God's word. James says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and then I'll seat you. Lord, we need your help. I need your help, Lord, to speak these words of life over us. Lord, we need help, Lord, to receive the words that you have prepared for us so that, Lord, we can have words of life. God, we pray that you would guide our hearts, our minds, and our tongues, God, that we might honor and glorify you in all that we do. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, if you're taking notes, you can write these three points down. Uh, We have the first point, our words are powerful. Our second point is whose words are powerful. And then finally, our last point is Christ's words are, are powerful. Well, uh, you know, growing up, uh, I was always a little overweight. I was always a little chubby. And one of the things that comes with that territory is people will make fun of you. And so when I was a kid, kids would make fun of me of my weight. And, and so without fail, I would always go to the teacher. And I'd go to the teacher and say, Miss so-and-so, you know, this kid is making fun of me, blah, blah, blah. And without fail, without fail, every single time I went to the teacher, I wanted them to intervene. I wanted them to step in and say something. But every single time, they gave me the same response. They would say something like this. They would say, Eric... Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words, they'll never hurt you. And so that became a mantra for me. I was like, okay, yeah, they're right. Sticks and stones may, may break my bones, but words, they'll never hurt me. They'll never hurt me. So I used to be like, yeah, they're not going to hurt me, but then I'll be like, I'm hurt. I'm hurting a lot. Like, why can't I stop this hurting? And here's what I realized. After reading scripture, I realized the Bible says that's a bunch of baloney. Like, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. In fact, this is what James is saying in verses three to five. Look with me. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He's using two examples here, and we'll talk about the third later. He gives three, but let's talk about the two. He's saying this, do you understand that the bit of a, of, of, uh, that you put into a horse's mouth is the size of my finger? And yet when you put it into a horse's mouth, you can direct and guide that body, that 2,000 pound horse's body. You can guide it left or right. You can move his entire body by this small little thing. He's saying this, right, that a ship, think about a 10,000 ton ship. It is guided by a rudder that is about a hundred square feet. A hundred square feet of rudder can guide a 10,000-ton ship. Small things do not mean small impact. Small things oftentimes mean great impact. And his point is clear. You can direct and guide somebody's life simply by your words. Look, a lot of us in here are Asian-American. We come from Asian-American households. But think about this, okay? Each and every single one of us grew up with these two words that guided and directed our entire lives, okay? Two words, doctor, lawyer, doctor, lawyer, doctor, lawyer, right? Your parents, all of our parents were like, doctor, lawyer, doctor, lawyer. And guess what? So many of us are either doctors or lawyers now or we thought one day maybe we could be doctors and lawyers. So we started studying biology or chemistry, whatever it is, at university, And now, if you are a doctor, if you are a lawyer, think about this now. Your your whole life, the next 30, 40, 50 years or however however many years you put into that vocation have been guided by words that your parents have said over and over and over again. In fact, think about this. The words that your parents never said impacted you. That's how powerful words are, even the words that they never said. In fact, in Asian culture, right, what do we know? We know that there are all these expectations floating around in our families, and we as children have to gather all those expectations without any words. And yet we gather up all the expectations that are over us, and then we, our whole lives are guided and guarded by words that were never even spoken. This is how powerful words are. In fact, I would say this too. Think about this, okay? Even imaginary words have power over you. Even imaginary words, meaning this, sometimes you have dialogues with yourselves, imaginary dialogues where you think a certain set of people are gonna say this about you, therefore you act in a particular way because you don't want them to say that. Maybe you post on social media, hey, I'm gonna post about this topic because I just don't wanna get, I don't want people to think I'm a bad person. And if I don't say something about this, people will say, like, hey, well, why aren't you posting about this? Or, 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 or think about this, right? We, we go and get grades. We go and get success because we don't want certain people to say things about us. We don't ex- if we don't excel in this area of my life and don't become this, I'll disappoint so many folks and so they'll say these things about me. Imaginary words are so powerful. This is how incredibly powerful words are. But look, here's where I think things get interesting. Look at verse five and six with me. James says this, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. In other words, a spark. A spark can set acres and acres and acres of land on fire. Talk to any Californian. Okay, they will tell you, small sparks start great fires. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell verse six this this phrase and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness that phrase is really really hard to translate in the greek and the reason why is because there's basically like four nouns just back to back to back there's no like connecting words there's no verbs there's nothing just nouns okay so the actual literal translation is tongue fire world unrighteousness that's literally what james says as so a scholar's like what does he mean by that To make a long story short, listen to what Douglas Moose says. He's he's one of the most, um, one of the more well-known New Testament commentators. And he actually wrote a book called How to Read the Bible for Outs Worth. And it's actually a really great book on how to read the Bible. But listen to what he says about the book of James here. He says, the tongue, by virtue of being the most difficult of all the parts of the body to control, becomes the conduit by which all the evil of the world around us comes to expression in us let me say that again, okay, becomes the conduit by which all the evil of the world around us, around us comes to expression in us. As Calvin, John Calvin puts it, a slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. Do you see what he's saying? Look, look, look what the verse, verse six says again, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. What James is saying is this, do you understand that all the evil you see in the world, all the murder, all the violence, all the abuse, all the stealing, all of the evil that you see, it began with words. It actually began with the tongue. In fact, this is what Christians believe. Genesis 3. How did all the sin in the world enter into the world? How did all the sin manifest into the world? Do you remember? Genesis 3. A serpent spoke. And humans believed. It all started with words. James is making a large scale claim here. He's saying all the evil we see in the world, if we trace its origins back, starts with words. That is a huge, huge claim James is making. But look at what he's saying here. Look at what he says. He says, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James is saying this. Look, you can go. Did you know how powerful your tongue is? Your tongue is so powerful that it's the only member of your body that can go into hell. And it can actually gather up all the fire that's in hell. And it can actually bring it back to this earth. And you can actually light people on fire with the fire of hell with your tongue. You can cause so much pain to people in this life by your tongue. You know, there's a documentary on Netflix called Audrey and Daisy. And it's a compelling documentary. I don't know if it's still there, but I watched it a while ago. And Audrey and Daisy basically follow these two girls named Audrey and Daisy. They're both 16 years, years of age. And Audrey kind of had a, a, a bad story, but Daisy's story is a little bit more hopeful. But basically, basically, what, what the documentary comes down to, without getting too explicit, is this. Audrey was um, just, just tormented with online cyberbullying. Like, they, all these girls, all these guys would question her character. They threw out all of this stuff, and they were cyberbullying, cyberbullying, cyberbullying. And then guess what she did? She killed herself. You don't need a gun, you don't need a sword, you don't need a knife to kill people. You just need your tongue, and you realize you carry that with you all the time. We carry weapons of mass destruction on us at all times. The Holocaust, think about it, was started with words. Adolf Hitler said words to people and they believed these words. Think about African race-based slavery, it was started with words and people believed words about the African people cult leaders have controlled people through their words the pen is mightier than the sword friends I don't understand why we talk about sticks and stones break my bones and words never hurt me all the evil we see in the world comes from words everything comes from our tongue Look, now, if you guys get to know me, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I'm pretty positive. And so I was asking James this question as I was reading. I was like, well, what about the good words? What about the positive words, James? And I was scouring this passage looking for the positive words. And like, and they're like, are positive words just as powerful, James? Like, if you're saying words are powerful, what about positive words? And I found nothing. And here's why I think I found nothing. Because I think what James is saying, this is just me. But I think what James is saying is this. Negative words are far more powerful than positive words. That's why he gives all negative examples. Negative words, and you already know this. If you've been living longer than a year, you already know this. Negative words are far more powerful than positive words. Think about the words that are seared in your minds. Words like, hey, you'll never amount to anything. You're a waste of my time. You're fired. You're fat. You're ugly. You're incompetent nobody likes you. You're a failure. These are the words that are seared in our minds and our memories. Or think about this, right? The words that weren't spoken to you, that should have been spoken to you, are seared in our minds. Words like this from your mom and your dad. I love you. I love you. These words should have been spoken by your parents, but for so many of us, these words were not spoken, and they've hurt us so deeply. Or maybe your spouse, your spouse not remembering your birthday and not saying happy birthday to you, these things scarred you. Or maybe your, ma- your manager or your boss never recognizing some of your hard work or effort you put into a project and them being silent in the absence of, man, just fantastic work that you're putting out there. Or maybe it was a time where your friend, your best friend, didn't invite you to their birthday party and you thought, man, I think I should have heard those words, you're invited. And some of us, some of us in here are still in therapy because of these wounds, because of these words spoken over us, negative words. Look, just to make this point extra clear, um, imagine with me, you, you stay at this church for 20 years, and say, I stay at this church for 20 years, and let's just say you listen to all my sermons, okay? So let's just pretend I preach 35 times a year, okay, that's 700 sermons you'll listen to if you stay here for 20 years and I stay here for 20 years. And let's just pretend each sermon is 40 minutes, although I know I preach longer, okay, but let's just pretend it's 40 minutes. You'll end up listening to 31,500 minutes of preaching, okay, over 20 years, Translate that into seconds, you'll listen to 1,890,000 seconds of preaching. Okay, in 20 years. But here's the thing you will probably not remember any one of those words. (laughs) And that's okay. But if I said, if I went for 10 seconds, just 10 seconds in those 20 years, just give me 10 seconds and I said the worst things to you and I started cursing in the middle of a sermon, I'm telling you right now, you'd remember all of the words that I said. You'd memorize those words verbatim. 10 seconds. I think I did the math. It's like point zero 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 five percent of all of my words. And yet you remember that 0.0000005%. Because negative words are incredibly powerful. And James is telling us this because he wants us to know that our words, we have to be very, very careful about our negative words. We have to be so careful about them. Because here's the thing. Our negative words can scar people. The next time you consider giving someone a piece of your mind, just think carefully about this. The next time you give constructive criticism, right? Think very carefully about this. Before you correct somebody, think carefully because your tongue is not harmless. But here's what happens to you. This is what happens to me. This is what happens to all of us, right? We, we say something to this effect. But Eric, they've got to know the truth. Like the truth. They, they got to hear the truth. And I'm just speaking the truth. And so we use the truth as a justifying means to tell people whatever they they need, what, what we think they need to hear. And we end up crushing people with the truth. And look, look, don't get me wrong. I love the truth. I preach from the truth always. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is that truth building them up? Right, because here's what we know. You don't have to comment on every single truth at every moment for every person. Right? You're not obligated to tell every single person the truth at all times uh, of all things. Right? Then you would have to comment on the sky. Hey, the sky is blue. I'm going to have to tell you, you, you. Every single person, the sky is blue. Every single person, there's clouds in the sky. Every single person that is 75 degrees today. Right? But I'm not obligated to tell you all the truth all the time. This is why Paul says this right, in, in Ephesians 4, 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. You you don't need the truth. You don't have to go around telling the truth all the time, as fits the occasion. And what's the occasion? For building up others. But here's what happens. Here's what happens. You and I do this. We say, they got to know the truth. They have to know the truth. But in reality, here's what's going on, is you need them to hear what you need to say. You need to get it off your chest, in other words. And so you have this conversation. You end up saying really hard things to this person. And you walk away from that conversation feeling great. You're like, whew, told them what I needed to tell them. Told them the truth. And in reality, they've been broken down. They're a shell of a person now because of that conversation. Did you talk to them because you were thinking of them or because you were thinking about you? Look, if you're a parent, we do this all the time to our children. I do this all the time to my kids. Look, like, uh, for example, Josiah, he's in Taekwondo right now. He's my oldest, and, um, and there was this one time where he just wasn't performing well. He wasn't listening to the master. Like, when the master would tell him to punch, he was just like, he would just kind of turn this way and kind of look there, just doing nothing. And I was like, I was like, I was just like trying to give him death stare, so he would look at me. But he just kept going like this. He was like playing with his belt. He put it in his mouth. There's a mirror over there, so he just started looking at the mirror like this. And I was so embarrassed because there's church people there. There's other people who come to our church that are there and they're looking at my son and they look at me. They're like, you're the pastor. I'm like, yeah, I'm the pastor, uh, but he's not my son. Don't worry. (laughs) I was so embarrassed. And so when my son came back, he asked his first question to me was like, daddy, did I do good? And I I gave him a piece of my mind. I said, no, you didn't. And I told, and we went back home, my wife told him, like, you didn't do a good job, you didn't do a good job, like you, man. And and here's what I recognize, here's what I recognize. I told him the truth, yes, of course I did. But was that for him or was that for me? That was for me. Because here's what I know, I was embarrassed. And I didn't want him embarrassing me anymore. And that's why I told him the truth, not because I actually was thinking about my son's emotional and spiritual health. And so the question is this, is this truth for you or is it for them? Because if it's for them, then build them up with the truth. And so ask yourself these two questions, okay? If you're going to tell somebody the truth, am I willing to serve and lay down my life to get them to this truth? Or here's a second question, or do I just want to drop this truth and expect them to make the changes? So maybe you want to have a hard conversation and you want them to change the way they do something. Are you willing to rough it out with them and to help them to get to that place? Are you willing to do the hard work of ministering and being there for them and and really loving and supporting them as they try to get to that place of truth? Or are you just dropping this truth bomb on them, expecting that they make the changes now? You know, I was telling Pastor David, uh, our worship pastor, about the sermon, and he reminded me of this uh, rule. It's called the four to one rule. And basically, what this, and it comes in all different shapes and sizes. I forget, Pastor Clara told me a different rule, like five to one. But basically, you should give five compliments to one negative thing, right? And, uh, but I would increase that. I would say 20 to one, 25 to one, maybe even 30 to one. Uh, and, and by the way, don't just go through the compliments so you can get to the bad thing. You know what I mean? It's like eating your vegetables so you can get to the bad stuff, right? Like, don't go through 30 compliments so you can be like, you're great, you're awesome, you're amazing, but you suck, right? Like, that, that's not what I'm saying. But it's, but it's, that's how much negative words weigh. They weigh so much more. Positive words, man, they land, it's nice. Like, e- even like when we do premarital counseling, I ask the couples, we do this thing called daily compliments. And, um, and, and I tell them, hey, what was the, uh, you know, did you guys do the daily compliments? And they'll say, yes. And then I'll say, what was the compliment? And they can't remember. They can't remember the compliment. But the negative stuff, they're like, oh, I'll tell you what they said verbatim. Like negatively, what they said to me, they said, my cooking is bad. They'll recite it. Married couples, if you're in a season of fighting, I want to give you some homework. I, I, I do this with all the premarital couples, but do the daily compliments. Find things about your spouse that you love about them and share it with them and affirm them. There's always, God has made you in his image and there's going to be great things that you can share about your spouse to them. And so share that. If you have brothers or sisters at home, compliment them, affirm them. If there are CG members in in our church today, affirm them, encourage them. Use your words positively and affirm and and encourage other people. In fact, I want you to make a habit of this, affirming uh, people around you, affirming your community group leaders, building them up in the truth, building up your spouse, building up your children, building one another up in love and in truth, because there are so many truths out there that are positive about people, and we have to use our words to lift them up however much we can because the negative words the negative words are going to pull them right back down this leads us to our second point whose words are powerful look at what james says in verse one here he says not many of you should become teachers my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness you know when i was going into seminary and when i was considering going into ministry this was the verse that really prevented me for such a long time because I remember really feeling just this, really, this gravitational pull towards ministry. And yet, over and over again, I felt like, man, but I'm going to be judged with greater strictness. And, and I think what James is getting at here is that he's saying this, look, with, with something like ministry will come authority. And with authority will come this. Your words are going to weigh so much more. Like what you say now matters so much more. So not only do negative words weigh a lot, but he's saying, look, the source of these words weigh a lot, like where it comes from. And so, for example, if you're, on, if you're on Twitter and somebody says to you, hey, you're a bad Christian, right? You're just like, okay, well, that's from Twitter. Like, I don't really care. But if I, if Eric Noel comes up to you and says, you're a bad Christian, man, that weighs a lot. Why? Because I have some authority in this church. And in the same way, I think what James is saying here is the source of the words determines the weight as well. And this is not something that I came up with. This is something that uh, a pastor named Andy Stanley came up with. So listen to what he says here. Look at this quote. He says, the relationship you have with others, the relationship you have with others is rarely the same relationship they have with you. Think about that for a moment. I know that's a little bit of a confusing statement, but the relationship you have with others is rarely the same relationship they have with you. And what he means by this is this, look if you're a parent in here, you know this, you know this, right? Your relationship to your child is not the same relationship they have with you. Or if you're a child, the relationship you have with your parent is not the same relationship they have with you. They're a parent to you, you're their child. Or if you're a boss or manager, the relationship you have with your subordinates is not the same relationship they have with you. Your words mean different things to them, then their words would mean different things to you. And so we have to consider the other person's relationship with you before you speak to them. Consider the source of what you're, consider the source of where these words are coming from. Look, especially if you've hurt somebody and you can't understand why you've hurt them, because we all do this, right? We all do this where we have a conversation and we hurt somebody and they tell us we hurt them, but we can't understand why our words would have hurt them. Consider the source right maybe for you maybe for you right now right just consider this right maybe for you right now you have a friend And you consider them a friend amongst many friends. You have maybe 10, 15, 20 friends, and they're just one friend out of a sea of friends that you have. But maybe for that person, maybe for that person, you are their only friend right now because they just moved to Seattle and they have no one else here. And so you're their only friend. And so when you didn't invite them out to the birthday party, when you didn't invite them out to the barbecue, it wasn't just a person amongst a sea of friends. You were their only friend that didn't invite them out. Consider the source or here's another example, you might just consider them a coworker, but in reality, in reality, you are a seasoned team member, and you act almost as a mentor in that group. And so when you went off on that person, you said, man, this work is bad, this work is terrible, you gave them all this feedback, in reality, it wasn't just another co-worker saying it to them, it was like a mentor to them. Or consider your spouse. And you might think, oh, they're just my spouse. I'm their spouse. But in reality, you might be their leader. You might be somebody they look up to. I know that's shocking, but sometimes your spouses do. They look up to you. And the words that you say to them, the words that you speak to them, man, it can really cut them deep because your relationship to your spouse might not be the same relationship they have with you. You know, just to be um, just very honest with you, I had a spiritual leader in my life once. And he was really big and pivotal in shaping my faith and my theology. And we we hung out for so many years and we became friends. And I think for him, he thought of our relationship as just a friendship. But for me, to him, he was my spiritual mentor. He was like everything to me. And so every word that he spoke, I hung on every word. I learned from everything he said. And yet one of the things that happened in our relationship, at least towards the end of it, was this. Is that one day we got into this huge argument. And he said, cutting and biting words to me. Even though he blessed me for six years in a row, th- that one conversation destroyed so much of what we had built. And he, I remember this. He said, you'll never, he said this, you'll never amount to anything, Eric. He said, in ministry, you'll never amount to anything. And he, he went ahead and he proceeded. He called me, you little piece of S. I've never forgotten those words. In fact, I ran out of that room because I was so hurt. In fact, for the next three or four years, I had to do therapy just to get over those words. And it's not simply because they were negative, because they came from a source. They came from somebody, somebody that I revered, somebody that I respected. And yes, we did. We went through a reconciliation process, and it was through the reconciliation process that he began to realize that his words were so heavy because of who he was to me. Look, if you're a child in here, you know, if you have parents, and maybe you still live with your parents, or maybe uh, you still have a pretty deep connection with your parents, think about this, you know. Of course, our parents. Our parents' words mean so much to us. They mean so much to us. But simultaneously, your words mean so much to your parents. You might not realize it. Now that I have kids, I realize it though. Like you know, my son Josiah, for example. Like if I go to my wife and I say, "Hey, hey, baby, you know, you look so pretty. You look so great. Your makeup looks amazing. Your dress looks so amazing." She'll always look at me. And she'll say this. She'll say, "What do you want? What do you want?" <laughs> I'm like, I'm just complimenting you. I'm just telling you how sweet you are. But if my kids, if my kids, if Josiah and Ezekiel, especially, because they're the ones who talk right now, if Josiah and Ezekiel go up to my wife and they say, Mommy, you look so beautiful today. Man, it lights up my, my wife's like heart, her eyes, everything. Her whole disposition changes. Everything changes. And I'm telling you, you may think I'm just a child. I'm just somebody else's child, but you're, you're not. You have so much power and so much things to say to your parents that would lift them up, that would encourage them, actually. So even today, if you go home and you see your parents, go and tell them. Go and tell them, affirm them. Because your words, the source of your words means so much to your parents. This leads us to our third and final point. Christ's words are powerful. Now here's the bad news. Okay, here's the bad news. The bad news is this. James tells us we cannot tame the tongue. We cannot. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. (laughs) <laughs> this is the funniest statement in the whole Bible to me, okay? He's saying we've been able to tame every single animal under the sun, and he's right. Have, do you realize we've tamed killer whales? Like, this is crazy to me. We've tamed dolphins and killer whales and sharks and lions and tigers. I mean, this is crazy. We've tamed these things, and yet James will say this in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. We've been, like, if we put our minds to, we could tame ants and fish too. I believe it. But he says, we've never been able to tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Look, friends, do you see what he's saying, we cannot tame the tongue. You cannot tame it. It's impossible. But look at what he goes on to say in verse nine. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. I mean, I don't know if you did this right before church you're like, man, you suck, and you're like, praise the Lord, right? I mean, I was for sure, like, I was cut to the heart with this verse. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Verse 10, from from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And listen to what he says here. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Can a fig, I mean, we're not, we don't need to know agriculture, right? But can a fig tree bear olives? No. Only an olive tree can bear olives, okay? Uh, Or grapevine produce figs. No, grapevine can produce grapes, not figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And here's what he's saying. No one can tame the tongue, but here's what he's saying. Jesus can change the heart. He can change the source of where those words come from. Because here's what we know. Here's what we know. All of your words, all of your words come from a source. And that source is your heart. And so everything that you speak is not just some flippant word that you're saying. It's actually coming from a place. And so he says, you cannot tame the tongue, but what you can do is you can transform the heart. Our tongues cannot do anything differently than our hearts, friends. And so I want you to think about your language. I want want you to take some time over the next few days to really listen to your language and and, and go get your CG. Go get people who are really close to you and ask them, listen to my language. Can you tell me what it's filled with? Are your words constantly critical? If you're mostly critical, most likely you have a critical heart. Are you constantly talking behind people's back, gossiping about them? Most likely, your heart is filled with a lot of unhealthy things, where you have a desire to speak ill about people behind them. Are you constantly negative? Are you cursing people? Or, or friends, are your words filled with encouragement and affirmation, cheering and celebration? And the Bible puts it like this, or Paul puts it like this. Is it filled with thanksgiving and praise? Are your lips filled with praise and thanksgiving? because your tongue will tell you where your heart is. And if you wanna know how well you're doing spiritually, consider your tongue. What are you speaking about these days? So look, if we wanna pour, if we want our tongues to pour out better speech, we we don't need to work on our tongues per se, we need to work on the heart. And this this is where Christianity has the best resources. This is where our religion, Christianity, Jesus Christ gives us the resources to shape our hearts. Because here's what I said right in point one. I said the negative words are the most powerful words. And yet here's what we know. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel are powerful words. And they're positive words. And they're the only words that can transform people's hearts. Because that's what the gospel is. Think about what the gospel is. Yes, it's it's a historical event. Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again. It's an event. But how is it transmitted? Through words. The gospel are words. And these are words that can transform and shape your hearts once again. They're the power of words to say God loves you, God died for you in your place, that God wouldn't leave you alone, but he came to earth as Jesus Christ in bodily form, and he spent time with us, and he reconciled us back to the Father by dying on a cross for us. Jesus Christ didn't save us to just go to heaven, but he saved us so that we can be in a right relationship with the Father, which is what we talked about last week, the ministry of reconciliation, friends. Look, friends, do you understand that the gospel, the gospel are the only set of words, the only set of powerful words that have actually grown? Jesus even predicted this. He said the gospel will be like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground, so small of a seed, and yet that seed dies, and when that seed dies, it'll spring up this great big tree, and this is exactly what's happened. Christianity, the powerful positive words of, of the gospel, have died in the ground, and they sprouted out into this enormous worldwide religion that we see today. It grew out of the backside. I say this almost every week. It grew out on the backside of Judaism. It was the smallest sector of Judaism, and it overtook the entire Roman government after 300 years. And not through force or violence, but because of death and dying in the ground and life-giving, giving giving of itself. This is the gospel, friends. You know, I want you to consider this, okay? I I was thinking about this, but think about this, right? If you read the Old Testament, every time an unclean thing touches a clean thing, the unclean thing doesn't become clean. The clean thing becomes unclean. You hear what I'm saying? So for example, right, if, if there's a... If there's an Israelite priest who was was clean and holy and then that Israelite uh, priest touched a dead body, the dead body wouldn't become clean, he would become unclean. Or if if an Israelite touched a leper and a leper was unclean, that Israelite wouldn't make the leper clean, the leper would make him unclean or her unclean. Clean things don't make unclean things clean, (laughs) right? Clean things don't make unclean things clean. It's the unclean things that make clean things unclean. (laughs) and yet there was one, there was one, there was one that where he broke all the rules, and his name was Jesus. This is why Jesus could go up to the leper and touch the leper, and people were like, that leper's unclean. Now you're unclean, but Jesus like, Mm-mm, no, I make things unclean clean now, and so that's why he would heal lepers. This is why he would touch dead bodies. He'd go over, and he'd raise up a dead girl back to life, and you'd touch her in, in raising her. What is he doing? He's showing you that he who is clean makes unclean things clean once again, And this is the power of the gospel. The gospel has the power to reverse the power of all these negative words. These words that have set your hearts on fire. So if you want to transform your hearts, if you want to transform it, the only way to do this is through the power of Christ's words. The power of the gospel which says God loves you before you've done anything. Even if you do nothing with your entire life, God loves you. And he gave his only son up for you. The gospel is the power to heal and to transform your hearts. It is a simple and yet radical message that you are his sons and his daughters and with you, he's well pleased even before you've done anything at all. Because you see, the gospel says this, that when Jesus Christ died, yes, he forgave us of our sins, but he gave to us a righteousness that is not our own. And when God looks at us, he looks at his son, Jesus. And so this is why when the, part, the, the clouds part in the gospels and the dove descends and it says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, that word, that word is for you and for me now. And it's a practice that I do daily. Here's one thing. I always want to make my sermons really, really practical. And here's one practice that I want to give to you, okay? To really really get this into your hearts. And it's a practice called silence and solitude. We've talked about this at the church. I've preached a whole sermon on it. In fact, if you want to go back into our archives and listen to it, you can. But the basic premise of silence and solitude is what Paul tells us. He says, think. Think upon these things. Think upon the gospel. It's setting aside and quieting your life down. Don't look at YouTube. Don't look at Instagram. Don't look at all that stuff. Don't watch TV. Don't scroll. Quiet your life into silence and allow your mind and your body and your heart to connect with the Father in silence and in solitude. It doesn't take a long time. Just do 5 to 10 to 15 minutes and that's all you need. And I've been doing this practice for a very long time and it's helped me tremendously transform my heart. You know, there was a season, and I'll just be really honest with you, there was a season uh, early on in the church's life when I was here four years ago, where, and this happens sometimes uh, repeatedly, this, this has happened repeatedly throughout, uh, maybe not in the same exact way, but it's, it's some shape or form of it has happened uh, over and over again since my time here. But to make a really long story short, when I first came uh, four years ago, there was a whole community group, a whole small group that left our church. And, and this really pained me, first of all, so I met with them, and basically, when I met with them, they essentially said something to this effect. I'm going to make a really long story short, but they said, it's because of your preaching. And man, like, as strong as I was trying to be, I was like, I was like okay, fine, you know, like, on the surface, I was like, oh, you know, like, whatever, I was, like, you know, trying to be strong, but man, inside, it cut me deep. And I remember starting to question myself, I was like, God, am I even called to this? Like, it, you know, am I even worthy? Like, and, and man, I started beating up myself so much to the point where I was in tears, and I remember sitting in silence and solitude and crying out to God and just telling him, God, like, am I, am I worth it? Like, what, like, should I even be here? Like, like, who am I? Like, all of these questions. And I just started pouring forth my heart. And I really felt like what God was sharing with me. And I don't hear the audible voice of God. It doesn't happen in a miraculous way. But I felt like what God was saying was this. Eric, I called you. And I love you. And even if you preach the worst sermons ever in the history of mankind for the rest of your life, that's okay. I love you. And I called you. And I have a purpose for you. And you see, in silence and solitude, what I want you to do is to identify the lie and then apply the truth. It's simple. Identify the lie and apply the truth. There are going to be words. There are going to be words that live in your hearts, that are lies about who you are, saying you're not good enough, that you're not worthy, that you're not valued anything, and, 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 and sit in that discomfort, but allow Christ to speak over you the gospel again. And to say, you are my sons and you're my daughters with you, I'm well pleased. Even before you've done anything at all, I'm well pleased with you. You know, I've learned, I've learned very quickly over the years that words, man, words are powerful. And yet, and yet, here's the thing. The words that I need to hinge my life upon are not the words of people, not of the words of men and women, but I need to plant myself in the words of God. You know, because here's the reality, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying this to myself too, but people are fickle. And if you base your emotions on people's words, man, your, your emotional life is going to go up and down, up and down, up and down. And here's the thing, everybody has a different opinion. Everybody has different words for you. And you'll never get the affirmation that you're looking for if you're looking for it in people. You're only going to get the affirmation when you go to Christ. And you know how I know this? I know this because of Tim Keller. You know, as you know, I talked about this a few weeks ago, Tim Keller was one of my spiritual heroes, he passed away, but did you know this? Did you know that at the end of his life, when he was battling cancer, people on Twitter still had horrible things to say about Tim Keller? And for me, Tim Keller is the most beloved pastor, he's the most quoted pastor in all of America, and yet still, still people would say nasty things about him. And that's when I knew, I knew, okay, if Tim Keller can't please everyone, I will never be able to please everyone. That's how fickle people are. And if I base my heart upon these other people's words, man, I'm going to be jacked up for the rest of my life. But I've got to base my heart. I've got to base the source of my life upon Jesus Christ and what he has to say to me. And I need to go to him in the secret place. We've talked about this, the secret place, the quiet place, where only God, where you interact with Jesus and he speaks his words of love over you. And he wants to transform your hearts. He wants to love you and he wants to shape you. And friends, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, do not base your life on other people's words. Go to the Father, go to the Son, go to the Spirit and allow them, allow them to fill you up and to transform your hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as I preached in the first sermon and as I prayed in the first sermon, And as I pray again now, Lord, just that the first thing that comes to my heart, God, is how many people I've hurt with my own words, God. Even just this past week, in the way I've talked to my wife and my children, Lord, I'm certain, God, that I've scarred and I've hurt people, Lord, and and I repent and I come to you for forgiveness. And Lord, I pray on behalf of this church community, Lord, and I ask, God, I'm sure for all of us, God, we, we curse people who are made in your image, and we also bless your name, Lord, And for that, Lord, we are sorry, God, and we we repent. And we ask that the blood of Jesus Christ cover us once again, to cover the multitude of sins, Lord. And Lord, we, we give our hearts back over to you, Lord, our tender hearts, God, that are broken, that are scarred, that are pierced by so many words. And Lord, we give it back to you, Lord, our gentle and loving Savior, and we ask that you would mend it. Like a good doctor, like a good physician, would you make it whole again? would you give us new hearts, God, so that we can love, so that out of our mouths, God, would not pour forth complaints or cynicism or criticalness, but Lord, out of our mouths would proclaim your fame, your goodness, would there be praise and thanksgiving on our lips, not because we fake it, not because we just try to tame the tongue, Lord, but because you've given us new hearts. As the Holy Spirit, as we worship you now, As we give you our words of praise and thanksgiving and blessing, would you transform our hearts, God, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you love us? Would you heal us? And would you make us whole? Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.